Welcome to Chasing Compliance, the global regulatory podcast, where we discuss all aspects of medical device and pharmaceutical regulatory strategy from bench to bedside. Today, we're talking to Marissa Mazzetti about the impact of the European Union Medical Device Regulation, or MDR, on medical device risk documentation and how to get legacy devices or new devices up to speed. In this episode, after providing a brief overview of risk management and risk management documentation, we jump right into discussing the changes associated with MDR, the interplay between MDR and the standard ISO 14971, the implications of grouping devices under one risk management strategy or process, the impacts of MDR on the clinical evaluation process, the role of the CR writer in this new cross-functional regulatory landscape mandated by MDR, and Marissa's tips for achieving compliance in this era where there's no rubric and really experience offers the best guideposts. A quick summary of some of the abbreviations you may hear early on but are not defined. QMS stands for Quality Management System, which is an overarching term used to describe the systems, processes, and functions used to ensure device safety and quality. MDD is Medical Device Directive, which is the set of medical device regulations currently active in the European Union. FMEA stands for Failure Modes and Effects Analysis, and DFMEA is the Design Failure Modes and Effects Analysis. PMS stands for Post-Market Surveillance. A bit more about Marissa. Marissa is a manager on the CER team and has been writing CERs for several years for a number of large medical device manufacturers. She has also worked on the clinical side as a clinical research associate and a clinical trial associate. Marissa holds a master's degree in regulatory affairs for drugs, biologics, and medical devices from Northeastern University. Let's talk risk with Marissa. Hey, Marissa, welcome to Chasing Compliance. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're really excited to have you on to talk about risk documentation and the new European medical device regulation, MDR. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. So we'll get into this in detail, but risk documentation is a critical piece of any manufacturer's QMS process and just what manufacturers have to do to maintain compliance overall. Today, we're going to chat about risk documentation in the context of mainly the European Union and European Union regulations. Um, For those who are not familiar, can you give us kind of a brief overview of what types of risk documentations have traditionally been required by the European Union? Is it similar to what's required by the FDA? Does this vary with class? What are we What are we looking at for those who aren't familiar with risk documentation? Yeah, so currently under the MDD, risk management isn't mentioned often. And, you know, technically not much risk documentation is actually required right now. Um, that's going to change with MDR, obviously, but, um, it's always been expected that manufacturers comply with ISO 14971. So if people have been complying with that, then they should be okay. But examples of documentation are things like risk analyses, risk management plans, risk management reports, and that's all kept within what's called the risk management file. So some people may be familiar with that and, Those are generally the same for FDA because you're using that to comply with 14971 and FDA loves 14971 too. So if you're complying with that, you should be covering most of your bases. So would a failure modes and effects analysis be considered a risk document? 
Yes. So that goes, yeah, that goes within the risk management file. Gotcha. Gotcha. And do those go into the hazard analysis type document or are those separate? So it depends on the company and some companies, you know, use the terms fault tree or risk analysis, hazard analysis. Um, So they'll, they'll all be kept within together, but it is kind of company based where you're going to keep it. Sometimes they attach the DFMEA to your risk analysis or your DFMEA is a completely different document with its own number. So it really depends on, on the company. Um, as long as you have it, that's the main thing and it lives within the file. The kind of collation isn't too important. Hazard analysis or hazard and harms analysis arose mm-hmm. by any other name would smell just as sweet, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So how does risk classification impact documentation? Do class one devices have the same burden of proof as class three? It's kind of obvious what the answer is here, but I'm just curious on your perspective, if, if things co vary linearly or you, you, there's a big difference between one and three. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of a hard question because in MDD, MDR, ISO, It doesn't say, you know, for class one, you need X, Y, and Z. For class two, you need this and that. It's kind of just implied that for, you know, class one, your risk management plan isn't going to be as long as for an implantable class three. You're not going to have to, you're not going to have as many risks. So therefore, the risk documentation is going to be a lot thinner, a lot less. Um, but the risk documentation still needs to be there regardless of if it's a class one or a class three. So no matter if you're talking about mechanical hearts or butterfly needles yeah, or a toothbrush, exactly. They still need some type of risk management procedure. Yes. In the EU for FDA, on the other hand, um, devices can be exempt from having a QMS altogether. So this is kind of where you see that separation and a little bit of difference between the U.S. and the EU. FDA, you can have a device that's very low class, like a bandage, um, can be completely exempt from having, that's an example, can be completely exempt from having a QMS, which involves risk management, versus EU, there's no guidance of low-risk class don't need to have any. If it's a medical device, it needs to have some sort of risk management system. So for those that may not be intimately involved in the quality management system or QMS system, they use a system twice, but for those not intimately involved in in that piece, then this could be a CER writer. This could be an engineer. This could be a marketing professional. Who is responsible for writing these risk documents? Who should somebody, if say they wanted to look at a failure modes and effects analysis or FMEA, who would they contact? And it depends on the company and how their departments are set up, but almost always medical device companies have quality engineers and quality engineers are generally who are most often responsible for, for um, creating these documents. And like you said, other parts of the company may see it, but if they have questions about it, it will always say who the author was, and it's almost always a quality engineer. Some companies have their own risk management departments. So if you're a company like that, then you might have a risk management engineer. Um, but most often, it's it's someone who works in the quality department, and um, they have risk management experience. They usually 
have engineering backgrounds. All right, let's dive a bit more into MDR. MDR represents a pretty massive change to almost all aspects of device certification from labeling to post-market surveillance to distribution channels. It, it has an impact on on many, many, many facets of the device, manufacturer, production, and distribution, in, including all aspects of the QMS. In, in M, MDD, the previous or the what's currently in place but is phasing out next May... MDD did not really require risk documentation for every device in the EU and mentioned it, but it didn't necessarily explicitly require that require risk documentation with MDR that's over. Essentially every device will need to have a risk management process that is documented, implemented and maintained. Can you give us a little bit more information about what's required under MDR and how this compares to MDD? Right. So I think I mentioned it you know, earlier is MDD doesn't mention risk documentation or risk management even too often. And then we're going to MDR where really what MDR is trying to do is align with that ISO 14971. So we want to have harmonization between MDR, 14971, FDA regulation. You see this kind of trend of harmonization between a lot of these regulatory bodies. So a lot of these changes in risk documentation of MDR, it's not a copy-paste, but it's how can we get MDR to be similar to 14971 and ensure that companies that are following 14971 are, you know, now compliant or close to MDR. But some of the changes, if you're following MDD right now, some of the new changes and new requirements are things, like you said, of having a risk management plan for each device. And, you know, if you're following 14971, you probably are close to this. You might have, um, you know, a group of devices that have a risk management plan. And this is something that we don't really know yet is, you know, if you have 10 to 20 different configurations of the same device, we're assuming you can group those together, right? It's not like you need to have for a nine millimeter tube, you need to have one risk management plan. And then for a 12 millimeter tube, you need another. Um, so we're making the assumption that you can group things. But I think what MGR is trying to do here is limit the grouping. If you have an implant, you can't have a risk management plan for the implant and the delivery system and, you know, the surgical tools that come along with it. Those Those need to be... Um, siloed. So um, some other requirements are identifying and analyzing, you know, the hazards associated with each of those devices, which you usually see mentioned in FMEA earlier. Um, so that's usually where you see those. And the risk management plan should include the FMEA. And then now instead of, you know, doing these big groups, you need to identify and analyze the hazards for each device. So even if you do group them together, you should mention each device, each configuration. So you're saying that essentially devices that may have been evaluated together in the context of clinical evaluation mm. may be not be able to be risk documented together. Right. You're going to have to find a systematic and justifiable way 
to group things together. And, you know, like I said, if you have one device that has multiple sizes, then you can probably, you know, include those together in your risk management plan. But when you're talking about a system that might have multiple components that all have different intended uses, and they may still be on the same tech file, but they might have different, you know, completely different intended uses, different IFUs, and they should probably have their own risks, which means they should have their own risk management plan. So that might be a good way of looking at it is, do they have the same risks? Do they have the same intended use? And if not, then you got to split them What up. about manufacturers that have several different devices that do similar or the same thing and that are they're implantable and they're delivered through a delivery system, which is unique to each device. But in principle, all these de- these delivery systems are very similar. Do you think that all of the delivery delivery systems could be in the same risk documentation process? Or do you think that each individual delivery system, provided again that they're fairly similar, needs its own risk management documentation independent of the others? Right. And that if they're all in the same technical file, um, then you can probably include them all together. But if there are devices that have completely different materials, they're on different certifications, um, you know, they're a different family of device, then this is kind of when we get into the family conversation of how do you put devices together in a family. So I would say if they're all having intended use, the risks are the same, they're used with the same types of implants, like you said, and they're all maybe used with the same family of implants, but the delivery systems might be different for different sizes, then I would say definitely it all depends on on the risks. And who's to say in the risk management plan that you don't have, you say it's for one device, which is your delivery systems, and then within that risk management plan, you have different sections for the different um, configurations. If, if you can justify that, you know, they're all technically the same family. So this is where I see a lot of, a lot of issues with this wording of risk management plan for each device. Right. That's, this is a complicated issue that manufacturers are going to have to navigate independently. Every product's going to be different. Every device is going to be different and every device accessory is going to be different. And there's going to need to be judgment calls. There's definitely not a clear rubric on what manufacturer X should do for product Y. So we are going to have to fill it out as as a as a group of regulatory professionals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Another um, new risk management requirement is that there's a focus on the entire life cycle of the device. So I feel like before there was this. You get your risk management documentation done, you get your certification, and then it's just left alone. You know, you see risk management plans from 2007. It's 2020 now. They've never been touched. It's obviously not not the best way to do it. But now there's this new requirement of the entire life cycle. So it's not just a set it and forget it type of deal. If your implant is good for five years, you know, you should be looking at the risks for the entire life cycle of that device, not just the implantation. You know, what's it going to be doing in four years? What are the risks of degradation or some other type of long-term hazard that could happen? This is a really important point, I think. And manufacturers that are going through MDR certification right now are experiencing this through their safety and performance objectives in many cases. Mm -hmm. 
they the notified bodies no longer want you to focus simply on device implantation and overall procedural clinical outcomes. They want mm-hmm. to look at outcomes that run through your device lifetime. Mm-hmm. You, you have a device lifetime. Um, often devices can be used past that device lifetime. They don't necessarily, what you're saying to patients as a manufacturer is the device is good for this long, whatever that time frame may be. And that's what, what the notified bodies care about. But that is a really interesting point is safety and performance objectives are having to be re-examined in the context of this lifetime. And it's interesting to hear that Mm -hmm. you think that risk documentation should follow the same pattern. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that if you see implantation risk documentation, a lot of those harms are you know, misuse of implanting and surgical harms and things that can go wrong within the first day. But what happens, you know, years down the line when you're saying, like you said, this device can be implanted for years and we're not talking about the risks down the line. We're just talking about what can go wrong in the beginning, but we really need to be talking about that whole life cycle that is backed up with our evidence and our VNB testing as well, that that life cycle is not just made up. We didn't just say, oh yeah, it's good for 10 years. It needs to be, you need to have the testing as well. It is also a big burden for manufacturers. Mm -hmm. So diving a little bit deeper into that, can you give us a bit more of an overview of the risk documentation standards that are set out by MDR, how they, how they compare to, to ISO 14971. Um, and what, what the, the, really what's going to be the impact on companies who either want to get a device on the market or have devices on the market that are already CE marked and approved? How is this going to influence their risk management process? I know this is a giant question and it's going mm. to have to be dealt with on a case by case basis, but can you give us some kind of like big picture overviews for either a new device or a legacy device and, and really what article 10 looks like? It is such a big question. <laughs> um, so I'm just trying to think. So we talked about Article 10 as the general obligations of the manufacturer. So these are things like needing a risk management system, having a quality system, implementing UDI, your general MGR requirements. And then we have Annex 1, which is our GSPRs. Section 3 to 5, those sections give the requirements of, of the risk management in a summarization, pretty much. It's so summarized, and it's not exactly a guide of how do I implement the best risk management system that will keep patients safe, make sure that devices are produced in a homogenous way. But that is really ISO. That's what you're looking at ISO 14971 for. It's going to give you a step-by-step, what are the documents I need? What are the processes I need? How am I updating my SOPs? And so that's what I see the difference where... MDR is just really the overarching regulation of you need to do number one, number two, number three. And then you look to ISO 14971. So that is a great resource for for new manufacturers that might not have an established um, risk management system or QMS. So that's really where you're going to get your step-by-step guide. So that's kind of where I see the difference there. And MDR, those regulations are set up in a way to make sure that you're following ISO. So it's going to say that you need things like 
that that risk management plan and you're going to need to analyze hazards and harms for every device and reduce risks as far as possible. But in order to do those things, you need to follow ISO. So they're kind of going hand in hand now. So that's kind of your best bet of getting MDR ready for, for risk management is to definitely follow that ISO standard. And when you get audited, they're going to want to see that you're following ISO. So that would be the best advice, you know, in my opinion, for for a new company that might not have a device on the market yet. For a company that is already CE marked, has a device that's CE marked, they're most likely following ISO 14971 because even though we've been following MDD, there's been this like underground requirement that you need to be following ISO 14971, even though it's not even in MDD. So they've been pushing for this for a while. Um, so you're probably going to see companies that are already following 14971. So it might not be a huge change to go to MGR. There are a few things that differ, but hopefully, you know, it's not a huge change for those companies. I totally agree with you there. I think that ISO 14971 has been the goalpost for a while, which is good in a lot of ways. Exactly. Yes. Right. Even though, but it's not written anywhere. No, no. There are some companies that are like, okay, but where does it say I need to do this? So... I, I can see it both ways because then the notify body is kind of like, well, this is an international standard. It's kind of the standard to follow. So it's kind of like wearing white after Labor Day. It's not written in the Constitution, but nobody does it, right? You gotta, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. You gotta follow it. Yeah, so exactly. <laughs> no, and that and well, and that's where it's nice to work with a consultant or somebody who interacts with the notified body quite frequently because they have right. that insight into, you know, if you're, if your company's doing one or two or three CERs a year, you may not understand that, but when you're doing 20 a month, it's a different story. So. Yeah. And it can even, you know, the, who the evaluator is from the notified body even can determine certain things. So if you have a consultant who might ask, you know, oh, well, who's, you know, who's the auditor and, even just from that answer, they know, okay, well, you're going to have to do this, this, and this, because mm-hmm. even evaluators have their own nuances. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're, you know, we're all human. So mm-hmm. yeah, we all have, yeah. Piggybacking off of that, um, MDR and ISO 14971 indicate that they would like to change or they suggest some changes to language surrounding risk documentation. What do you think about these these changes to language? What are these changes? And do you think they'll have any impact on manufacturers? So the 2019 version has some new changes calling post-market, post-production now. And there are a few other, few other language changes. I don't see it as something that would be the difference between getting certified and not. It seems to be kind of a suggestion of these are the harmonization of language that we would like to use. I'm seeing post-production used a lot now, and it's kind of confusing me because I'm used to post-market. So it is going to take some change for us in the industry to, to get used to this you know, standard for ISO to try and push new languages. But there are other changes in the 2019 version, too, where they're incorporating some new terms like benefits and state of the art. So this sounds kind of familiar. So it seems like the 2019 version is now trying to 
align with MDR. So it's kind of this back and forth where MDR tried to align with ISO 2012 and then the 2019 of ISO came out as trying to align back with MDR. So it seems like we're trying this harmonization. Um, so I wish that they would just work together and maybe, you know, come out with their own document that is all aligned instead of this back and forth. But it, it is. There's, yeah. No, yeah, it's nice. It's nice to have some of the consistent language right across. Right. And it, it's nice to be able to talk about things, the same piece of a document, this is like the state of the art or a, a concept similarly across different standards. However, changing post-market to post-production may be difficult. I mean, I'm the kind of guy who's still dating stuff 2019. So mm -hmm. it, it may take me a little while be, yeah, yeah to, right. to go to post-production. But I, you know, I understand why they're doing that because it is more clear. Mm -hmm. But it's, it is something that we're going to, we're going to, I think, will adapt slowly over time. I agree. I don't think that it's going to be make or break between getting a CE mark and not. Right. Kind of like these suggestions that they say, you know, this is what we would like to see in the documentation, but they're still going to know what you mean. Another change to the new ISO that I just thought of as well is they're putting this new emphasis. Well, I wouldn't say it's new because it's really part of MDR is they're putting this emphasis that they had it before on the overall risk versus the overall benefit and risk management, you hear risk, you usually think of harms and hazards, where now regulators also want to know the benefit. They don't want to just know the risks. They want to know, okay, give me all your risks, and then what is what are the benefits that we're kind of doing our calculation to see if one outweighs the other, um, where before we would just say, you know, the risks, they, you know, they don't outweigh the benefits, but we wouldn't say what the benefits were. So now that's where similar to MDR where they want that risk benefit analysis. Now ISO saying that you have to really think about the benefits as well and um, consider those. So, and then another thing that I wanted to mention as well is that they're talking about the overall risk where if you have a lot of tiny risks, does that equal one big risk? So it's, it's interesting how, how the idea of these, risks and benefits are changing that if you have a lot of little risks, does that equal a risk that might outweigh the benefit? So there's a, there's a shift in the mentality here. I think that's really interesting. That will be a big change for those who are involved in preparing risk documentation. Mm -hmm. because some, sometimes it, voluntarily benefits are discussed, but it's not often. Right. It's mostly just the facts and what are the risks? What are the worst case scenarios? What are the potential harms? Right. Not what what does this device bring to the table, which I really think is an interesting. That's typically all brought together in the clinical evaluation report right. where where these risk documents are evaluated. And that segues into another question that I have is, do you think that these changes in the risk documentation will impact CERs in any way? or the strategy or how they're written. Yeah, I definitely think so because with, with MDR, now there's a bigger need and want for risk management documentation to be mentioned in the CER. And they're really, MDR is really asking for that feedback loop between CERs and risk management where 
a CR writer might be the first person to see a complaint or see something happening. They're kind of in that front line of, of seeing the clinical use of the device, you know, secondary to healthcare professionals, but in terms of in, within the company, we're reading the literature, looking at the complaints. So CER writers along with PMS need to be feeding what they see into the QMS. And what that needs for manufacturers is creating procedures where you have this nice feedback loop that the procedure should say, when a CER writer finds a risk or a complaint that isn't mentioned within our risk documentation, X needs to happen. This needs to happen. So you need to proceduralize these things. And that's a big part of NDR is how, how do we proceduralize the, the feedback loop that they're asking for? So a great way to do that is making sure that your CER writers know what to do when, when they find a risk that isn't that isn't anticipated in our IFUs or risk documentation. I think that's a great point. Your CER writers, as a manufacturer, your your CER writers are the canary in the coal mine. They are a key right. part of your surveillance process. They're not just people putting together submissions. They mm-hmm. really have their finger on the pulse of all all areas of the document and all sorry, not all areas of the document, but all pieces of the device. And mm-hmm. it's important to consider what their findings are in your risk documentation. And as a CER writer, you really do have a responsibility before finishing the submission to tell people in the risk group or pieces of the QMS process, whoever's relevant, what you have found. So you can Mm -hmm. start to, to work on it. Um, you know, say you identify a risk in your clinical evaluation process that you hadn't seen before. Notified bodies are going to look much more kindly on a, a submission that has identifies the risk because you can't just sweep it under the rug, but also has, Hey, we're doing this about it. We're, this is already under evaluation. We've got, you know, we're working mm-hmm. on a Kappa or whatever, whatever is irrelevant. Right. Um, Kappa stands for corrective and preventative action, but that that's important. And I also think too, that one thing that's important now is if the risk documentation is going to include a discussion of the benefits, this needs to tightly align with what's discussed in the CER. Mm-hmm. They can't be different. So those writing the CERs and those writing the risk documents work together. Right. Yeah. And, and equality should get used to CER writers as well. And you're going to have to be working with them more. So it's, it definitely might be some even shifts in, in cross-functional teams and how they work together. Because before CER writers and quality might have been very siloed and you know, you only ever talk to them when you need an, an FMAA or some sort of documentation where now CR writers might have to, you know, help write the DFMEA when they're the ones who who read the literature that had the risk. And so we might be looking at some some changes within companies as well. Yeah. So the real reason I wanted to chat with you today is because you are a pro at optimizing processes and making companies compliant with the least resource investment possible. You're great at figuring out strategies to navigate compliance. So can you share with the manufacturers or those involved with the QMS process or the CER writers out there, what, what they should be wary of as far as these changes 
and how you expect these changes with respect to risk documentation to impact manufacturers? So it really depends on the company, of course, and then the risk class, because um, that's going to your class three devices are probably going to be way further along in risk documentation than your class one. Um, at least that's the idea. A lot of companies, their class one devices, you know, they didn't really keep up to date because they're not being audited. Um, so a lot of companies just kind of do their class one documentation and it stays there forever. So class three needs to be updated more. They're auditable. They're going to get a lot more action. So you probably have to uh, keep those up to date. So my best advice is to do a gap analysis to make sure that you're, um, you know, you're up to date where you need to be. You can see where you need work. And if you're a quality engineer, you know, working on these types of documentation, some good advice would be to befriend your MGR regulatory specialist at your company. If you have one, if it's a smaller company, you might just have, you know, someone in regulatory that you can bounce ideas off of. They're probably the best person to help you with a gap analysis because they know MDR. They know the GSPRs. They probably know ISO 14971 as well. So that's probably your best bet is finding that regulatory person and creating a gap analysis and seeing, you know, what, what devices do we want to certify? You know, you don't want to do a gap analysis for something that's getting obsoleted. You don't want to waste your time. So, you know, something that is you're going forward with for MDR and then you can go forth from there and find out a gap analysis for your risk, for your risk management. And then if you're already following ISO, like we said, you're probably close. You just need, you know, a few more things or change some of the language and make sure that. If you're going to go forward with 14971-2019, that you update it as well. And that's another good piece of advice is while you're already updating your risk management for MDR, that's a great time to go in, you know, buy the ISO 14971 standard for 2019 and just update it to then because um, the last one was 2012. So this is a great chance of why update it twice. So we're going in for MDR might as well do a gap analysis at the same time for MGR and 49.71.2019. That's some great Did advice. Your question? No, that's perfect. <laughs> no, that's a, that's that's excellent advice. I would like to underscore something you said and paraphrase it. Those with the class three devices worry less about those and worry more about all of the accessories, the cables, the delivery systems, the introducers. Those are the things that are going to probably give you the most headaches because their risk management processes and documentation are probably it's more likely that they're not compliant than your class three devices. The level of scrutiny that's gone into MDD the last couple of years. And you're if you have a class three device, you're, you're submitting CERs every year. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's pretty close to what we're looking at as far as MDR. It's it's the. It's the glue. It's the whatever that's associated with the device that that may give you headaches. And and if you can't use the delivery sheath, then your wonderful, beautiful device can't help patients anymore. Right. Your class ones, they kind of get forgotten about because 
you get, you know, you self-certify and no one's really, I mean, there's always a chance of audits, but it's kind of the thing at the manufacturer of, well, it's probably not going to happen. So I'm going to put all my time and energy to the class three that, you know, is going to get looked at by the notified body. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great point. You know, the class three device is nothing without the accessory that is needed to implant it or deliver it or run it. So do you have any other tips for manufacturers? Definitely. If you don't have like for small companies, you might not have the resources in house. So you, you can always look to companies like global or, you know, a consulting company that can have the resources without having to hire someone. It can sometimes work out a lot better to look externally for that expert help than to try and hire someone, get them up to speed, train them if they're not um, familiar. So, and you might not even have the correct resources to train someone in this if you, if the company themselves don't have it, have that knowledge. So I think that that's another great way to, to get this done is to look externally. And that's something that a lot of companies are doing is, you know, Hey, I need the CR done. Let me just go to this company, pay them to get it done rather than try and, you know, hire someone to do something, especially for those low risk devices where it just needs to be done once and then not going to be updated for a couple of years. You're not going to hire someone to, fix the documentation for something and then they don't have anything to do for three years. So it's either going to be a contract position or you can just hire, you know, a contractor through a consulting company. So that's, that's another great way to get things done. If you don't want to, you know, hire the resources for the company. That's a great point. We talk about this all the time on the, the podcast. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Some of this risk documentation and CERs and just EU compliance in general, it can be an economy of scale. Reach out and find somebody who does this all the time. It will end up in the long run saving you a lot of time, money, and headaches. Right. How many times have we seen something that a company has done and then the notified body comes back and says... No, and then they have to go out and get that help anyhow. So sometimes it's better off to just the first time, like you said, get someone who's done a million of whatever it is you're trying to get done. Right, exactly. Do you think the CER writer should be involved in this risk documentation process? Do you think they should influence this process? Do you think they should be leading the charge? Do you think that they should kind of just wait until the documents are finished and collect them? Where do you think that they fit in this whole scenario? Well, as a CER writer, I may be biased, but I think that CER writers have a huge influence on this process. And MGR was designed this way on purpose to get this to be one beautiful feedback loop. And with CER writers, they're they're collating all of this data, all the performance data, all the safety data. They're the one person, I feel like, who is looking at the entire lifetime of the device. They're looking at when it became, when it went on the market, even before that, they're looking at all the V. They're just getting this new perspective of the device. And I think that's super important. And they're reading all the literature. So even if they see something small, like in the literature, you know, a surgeon was 
implanting a hip and one of the insertion products broke and it created no, you know, safety issue, but they didn't like it. And they might write that in the paper that they're going to go back to this device because they didn't like this new device. And it's something that might get skipped over, but the CER writer is going to see, and then they can, you know, bring that to the usability team. They can bring that to the, the QMS team. And that's why you need that to be proceduralized so that it doesn't get lost, just get written in the CER, this happened, and then nothing happened about it. And that's where MDR wants something to happen about it. It wants to feed back into the risk management and how are you going to fix that issue? So I think CER writers, they really do have a very unique position where they're, they might be seeing things for the first time. And they should also work along with the PMS and complaints team because the PMS team might've already seen it. So you want to work with PMS closely and, and then QMS as well. So I, I think there's a very, yeah, like I said, it's just a unique kind of position now that it didn't exist before where this one writer or team is seeing the whole entire life of the device. It might have a unique pers perspective of how to fix things. So I think that they should be a part of those, those risk management conversations. Unfortunately, we have become the ultimate helicopter moms of the medical exactly. device industry. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. It's a helicopter mom, but also it's monitoring patient safety as well. So it's, it's really important. And we're kind of like piggybacking onto PMS because PMS and complaints are going to, they're going to see all these complaints, but then they're going to do their literature search, but they might not have the people specialized to, to read the literature in depth and analyze it like we do, where that's really our, you know, a big part of our job where PMS folks might have a million other jobs to do. So right. we're kind of like, piggybacking on to PMS in a way. And, and their job is not necessarily to contextualize everything in the, in the context of everything else. Right. So right. to be looking at, right. you know, the PMS may be solely focused on complaints and risks, harms, hazards, but not mm -hmm. necessarily benefit. And so that's, you know, mm -hmm. that's an important right. piece of that too. So. Yeah, definitely. Marissa, thank you so much for your, insight into this. This is a really interesting discussion. Now we get to do something a little bit fun. At the end of every show, we like to do a segment called Favorite Friday Nights. I want to know how you like to spend your Friday night either or how you like to celebrate after a big regulatory win. What do you like to do? Ooh. Do you like to leave the office early? What are you into? I'm into being in my comfy clothes on my couch <laughs> with the doggo. I'm usually watching Netflix or some sort of conspiracy document documentary. That's usually that's usually my Friday. Nothing crazy. Usually lots of snacks as well. Gotta have snacks. Mm. What's your what's your documentary series right now? What are you watching? Right now I don't have anything. I started the uh, Challenger documentary series last night and I think oh, it's good. I wanna watch the one. It is? Okay. It's good. No, it's it's good. It's really interesting. It is really, really interesting. So. Dan was going to start watching it and I got so mad that he was going to watch it without me and we haven't lined up so we haven't neither of us have watched it yet well when you guys find time together it, that's okay. a wonderful thing to look at Marissa thanks again so much for your time we really appreciate it and it was great to speak with you 
great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chasing Compliance. And once again, a big thank you to Marissa for joining us today. If you have any further questions regarding risk documentation, MDR, or any of the other topics we discussed on today's show, please don't hesitate to reach out to us directly through email at info at globalrwc.com or by visiting our website at www.globalrwc.com. There you can find show notes, links to other podcasts, white papers, tools for regulatory and clinical strategy, and more information regarding our approach to solving a variety of regulatory and clinical challenges. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, leave a review, or share this with your colleagues. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast app you are listening on, or leave us a comment directly on our website. We read each and every comment and review, and it helps us improve the show. So don't be shy, but don't be mean. Thank you, and we wish you continued compliance.